Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week on The Grange Point, we have Lachlan, Lauren, and Justin. This week in Lagrange Point, we get insane on the Lagrange brain where we talk about some science, music, language related to the brain. Also, we bring along your dog to find out how it processes human voice. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. This week's City of Science is Budapest in Hungary. Now, we're talking about this place because the Otevers Lorand University in Budapest actually is one of the researchers doing some fantastic work on the way that animals and pets, like dogs, process languages and human speech. We're going to be talking about that in our first news story. But first, the University of Odvres Lorraine, which has produced this fantastic research, dates all the way back to 1635, which I've got to say is considerably older than the country of Australia. So, hey, pro tips for you. And you've been doing some great work since then. And it's really actually quite interesting. We've got about 30,000 students nowadays. And it's actually ranked, you know, about 300 in the world rankings of universities. But you're doing some great work on animals' brain language processing. So good on you. Keep up the good work. So Lachlan, I really love pets and animals. They're a great form of companionship and understanding for human beings. And they're a really great way of building bonds and learning and developing, especially for young children. Lauren, do you like any particular type of animals? Uh, I'm more of a dog person myself. I've got um, an amazing little puppy called Vandalay, which is a weird name, I know, but still. That's a Seinfeld reference. That is a Seinfeld reference. <laughs> now, Lachlan, do you like animals and pets? I don't really get animals because they don't do anything. They're not like, you can talk to people, get to know them, and you, they can understand you. You can build a relationship, but animals don't really understand any of that sort of stuff. So what's really the point of having them? That's a really interesting question. I am a fan of robots as my virtual pet of choice, so I, I am a bit even more obscure on this line. But what Lachlan was talking about in understanding and building relationships with animals is a really interesting piece. The way in which animals process human voice is interesting. If you ever try to treat or train a dog, for example, you'll know that they can recognise their name and they can respond to it. Even though they may not know what the words mean, they know that the actions associated with them and actually process and recognise that no matter who's saying them, the speaker. So clearly they've got some way to process language and understand what's being said to them in some kind of way. So humans and dogs last had a common ancestor about 100 million years ago, and that, that's quite a little while of genetic development and diversity. Our great Lord Anubis. Yes. No, no, not quite. <laughs> that is an Egyptian myth. And not actually related to 100 million years ago, probably more like 6,000. And also, ancient Egyptians weren't actually chimeras slash human-dog hybrids. <laughs> Sorry, ancient astronaut, hypothesarists, and Stargate fans. Humans and dogs actually process language and sound in similar ways inside their brain. And to test this, some scientists came up with an ingenious method of taking dogs and training them to sit patiently and still inside an MRI machine. <laughs> so an MRI machine, a magnetic resonance imaging device, is used to help take pictures and understand how the brain functions. And so when humans inside an MRI machine and you expose them to language, sounds, crying, speech, joyful laughing, other types of responses that the human brain reacts to, certain parts of the brain light up as you process those thoughts. And you can pick that up in an MRI. 
Now, what these scientists did with dogs is actually put them into the MRI machine and exposed them to laughing, barking, or bark, laughing, but barking, whining, crying, various other types of dog sounds that other dogs make. And what they actually found was that the dog's brains were processing them in the same region of the brain that humans are processing sounds where we process language. But Justin, did they expose them to um, Doge language, like much science? Very MRI, wow. I don't think that's actually the language that dogs speak, unfortunately, but we don't have a translator device, so I could be wrong. What this actually gets at is it talks about how language processing and understanding of language and the importance of that to animals and humans is such an important part of our brain's processing power that it has dedicated regions in our brain, not just humans' brains, but also animal brains, and not just dogs, but all since the diversity between dogs and humans is so much, it means that there is likely spread through all other types of creatures. So we're not alone in the ability to process and understand our fellow species members' cries, laughs for joys, warning calls, mating calls, angry calls, happy calls. We process them in similar ways. There's another hypothesis as well that arises from the study, Justin, in that um, dogs and humans have sort of... Um, learn to cohabitate for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So it could be that dogs actually have evolved to understand human speech a little bit um, as sort of a way to actually cohabitate and, and be companions to each other. And that's really a great part because dogs actually are based off wolves, which are pack animals. And so they, they're all about cohesion and working as a unit and a team. And if you have a dog exposed to a human who they're working together as a team, so if you've ever seen a sheepdog work, you'll know that they do are great at that. And so what that actually gets at is we're just a part of the pack it's a wider extended pack. And if you've ever owned a dog, you'll know that this is what happens. So it's non-surprising that over many, many thousands of years, we actually develop understanding of each other and ways to actually interpret and respond to them. But that's not necessarily mutually exclusive with the idea that all these animals actually share the same ability to process language. Dogs just have learned how to adapt that to also their dog speak. So they've worked in elements of human speech into understanding not necessarily the meaning of the words and the language, but the intent of the emotion. And they use their similar parts of the brains to humans to process that. So Animal Kingdom is a great way to learn about how we work and how our language works, but also some broader truths about how the brain in general works to process language. Just like certain parts of the brain are used in both humans and dogs to process language, there's other parts of our brain that have to do with social memory. So what's actually going on with our brain's processing of social knowledge? Well, yeah. Um, so scientists at the Columbia University Medical Center um, have determined that we've actually got a part of the brain um, that is essential for social memory. So um, it's only used, really, to remember people in social situations. Oh, that's really interesting because I didn't really actually realize that a part of the brain was dedicated to memorizing faces and names and social interactions. Well, we're incredibly social creatures, Justin, and it sort of makes sense um, in sort of environments where we're going to be working together with people. Um, it's important to be able to identify people based on their characteristics and their strengths and be able to sort of work with them and, and negotiate with them. So I know that's part of the brain that's really essential for memory. I think it's the hippocampus. Is, is this, for example, a part of the hippocampus or a completely different part of the brain, for example, more to do with language? or? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the, the hippocampus. It's in the CA2 region, which is just a small region of the hippocampus. And um, they actually sort of figured it out because there's been famous examples of people who were damaged in that region. And um, if you introduce yourself, they'll go, oh, hi, hi, how are you? But if you meet them again, they will have no recollection of, of you. They can remember the conversation you've had, 
um, and what you've actually talked about, but the actual recollection of the person itself is just completely gone. That's really interesting because a lot of the brain study stuff that we do actually comes from, as Lachlan was describing, these amazing case studies examples of people who have really serious issues with their brain, but it enables us to learn about the brain by basically evidence-based understanding. So why do we have to use case studies? Well, case studies are a great way to understand what happens when a certain part of the brain isn't working. So it basically enables you to figure out what is going on with the brain in normal case and then what is not going on in a person who has a deficiency, like we're talking about in this case. So tell us more about the social deficiency and then what, what the impacts are of it. So the reason that the, the way they actually found um, this discovery, not only through famous cases of people having um, bits of brain missing or, or dysfunctional, uh, they've actually built a mice model to figure this out. So um, mice have a region sort of analogous to the CA2 region um, in humans, um, and they actually bred mice that were deficient in that region. And what the sort of test sh showed was um, when you compare them to mice that have normal brain activity, mice with the CA2 deficiency had no preference for mice they'd met before when they were working. So what do they do with these mice who've been bred not to have this this C2 area in their brain be as sufficient? Um, they basically just introduced them to other mice um, over a number of separate occasions uh, and sort of monitored the reaction. So whether a, a mouse would go for um, a mouse that had met previously or a mouse that had never met before. Um, and in normal mice, um, they'll sort of learn to sort of trust and start building bonds with mice they've met before. Um, but what they found with these CA, CA2 deficient mice is they had absolutely no preference. Um, and they thought that this might actually be because there was something wrong with their sense of smell. Um, but in another experiment, they took away the sense of smell and the same sort of thing happened. Uh, and they thought that actually it might not only be for social recognition, but object recognition in general. Um, but mice would still investigate um, new objects that they thought could contain food. So it was only in the social situation they didn't go with a mouse they'd met before, which is what usually happens in that situation. This presents a really interesting point because we've basically verified that in mice the CA2 region is a social region of the brain that performs this function. But we're not really having a good way of actually verifying this in humans without breeding humans who are deficient in that area or monitoring humans who are deficient in that area, which is actually quite difficult to control for, let alone ethically problematic. The problem with a lot of these case study-based analysis of people with certain brain deficiencies, damage or limitations, is that we don't actually know how much is specific to that one person or how much is part of a general trend. So that makes the difficulty of using a single source of data for your hypothesis. It's best to be able to have a repeatable, continuous experiment that you can control for and actually monitor, which is why they've done this research in mice. And it's good, except for the thing is, even if they have analogous regions, it won't be exactly the same because mice brain, mouse brains aren't human brains. That's the only issue with that. But it is a stronger model than going off single case studies. So it means that we have a theory for how it works that we can back up with evidence-based medicine. It may not be the best answer for the how the human brain works, but it means we have a relatively good understanding of the importance of the CA2 region for processing social memory. So next time your mum forgets your name and calls you a raft of range of your cousins, brothers, children at school or any other place... Remember that it's probably not anything specifically that you've done wrong or that she's done wrong, but it's just probably something happening in her CA2 region of her brain that's causing that memory thing to go on. Justin, I never had that problem. My parents love me. You're an only child. <laughs> your parents aren't teachers. If you have siblings, this is a common occurrence. Trust me. <laughs>
those who fell asleep in the middle of the podcast and have just woken back up in a fit on the bus on the train in a moment of panic, and you don't really understand why or how you fell asleep, Lauren's going to tell us some interesting news stories about what actually makes us switch off. So, Lauren, how does the sleep mechanism and switching on and off actually work? Is it a brain switch? Is it something that just happens? Well, what they've actually found at the Oxford University is it's kind of counterintuitive. What makes you switch off is a bunch of your neurons actually switching on. Now, hang on a second. Are you sure these neurons aren't Australian and they're, like, being ironic about doing this? Like, yeah, mate, yeah, to get to sleep? Nah, got to be awake. So they, why, why are the neurons actually why are the neurons actually turning on to actually go to sleep? So the switch works by turning on the sleep-promoting nerve cells in the brain. So what, what happens? So like when, when you're tired, these, these neurons just go like, hey, you, make you go to sleep. So they actually, like, wake up the stuff that's actually meant to help you go to sleep. Is that, is that how it works? That's pretty much how it works. This is actually really cool because um, knowing which nerve which nerve clusters it is that turns on to call it, to like encourage you to go to sleep means that we can help with um, improving treatments for sleeping disorders. Oh, but really, we've known this for a long time, right? So if you hit someone in the back of the head with a brick, that's going to put them to sleep, right? That's for different reasons. That's not actual conscious selection of sleep. That's more unconscious, falling unconscious due to your brain shutting down to protect itself. Which brings us on to a really interesting point of different reasons why sleep is important. So the, the cool thing is we don't actually know why we need sleep, that we haven't decided on that yet. And there's two big competing theories as to why that is. They count as the survival theory and the um, restorative theory. So restorative theory is basically thinking that, hey, look, we go to sleep to go and repair our, basically, um, repair our body. So you go to sleep and... Your brain cells repair themselves. Um, your muscles and stuff um, gain more energy and produce ATP and things like that and restore all the chemicals in your body. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Basically, it's a recharge function for your brain by going, hey, okay, let's, let's take a breather here, guys. We need to fix ourselves before we go out and face the world again. But what's the survival theory? The survival theory is that you actually fall asleep at night because it means that you're not moving around as much and are less likely to run into predators and things like that. Also, you're conserving energy. Yes, so that, that's really interesting because giraffes, for example, they only sleep about 15 minutes a day, which is a really short amount of time compared to our eight hours that we do. And they're, they're, they're huge creatures. They're not like they're small. In comparison, sloths and koalas sleep a lot of time. Which is actually one of the um, points against the survival theory because if you're asleep, it means that you're more likely to be a target for a predator. I mean, they're going to see this like small, invisible object. You can't, you're less likely to just wake up and be able to protect yourself you become an easier target. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Also, if you go without sleep for a long time, obviously your brain is the thing that starts to go. Like, my body can survive a lot longer than my brain can. I start making mistakes. I, I, my emotions sort of get out of whack. So doesn't that sort of give more evidence towards it being a biochemical brainy sort of thing? That's true. But the thing is, if, um, if it was more just like a restorative theory type thing, then um, based on that, people with, um, for example, major injuries like... Um, People who are in wheelchairs or have um, really bad long-term injuries, they should be sleeping more than average people. But um, studies haven't actually shown that that's so. They, they sleep a normal amount of time. Hey, so if you've got this cluster of neurons that you can switch on to cause sleep, would there be any ways to actually target those neurons specifically and switch them on? Can't you use electricity to try and trigger neurons and stuff like that? 
I'm personally not too sure. I mean, I know you can trigger certain groups of neurons with um, neurochemicals and neurotransmitters. So maybe it's possible in the future that we can create a neurochemical that will trigger these specific group of neurons. Yeah, so this research being done out of Oxford University's Centre for Neural Circuits and Behaviours, really looking at this concept because if they can answer the question of what these sleep switch neurons are doing when they turn on, and also when you're asleep, these, these neurons are still firing there. What are they actually doing during this time? And that raises a really valid question. And monitoring something about the behavior and nature of the sleep, which may lead some clues as to which of the major theories of restorative survival is actually happening at that point in time. So there's a lot of active questions going on in the area of sleep science, and it's one where we maybe need to have a rest on, have a sleep on to think it over. Alright, so we're going to ask a really interesting question in the not even rocket surgery section of this week's podcast, and that is, we're talking about the brain, we're talking about the way brain processes all sorts of language, but the question I'm going to ask is, is it worth having yourself as a brain in your child? Is, to you, the brain the most important part of your being? Would you exist happily as a brain in a consciousness vat somewhere, or would you actually want to have that brain associated with the body? This is something posed a lot in science fiction. Of course, it's a very popular old, old scientific method of uh, exploring uh, the the realm of the consciousness and whether or not the brain exists as its own entity or it exists as part of the overall machine that is the human body. So, Lachlan, what would you feel? Would you learn to live in as a brain in a jar? So, if I could live as a brain in a jar, technology would probably be enough that you could sort of simulate... And so I'd experience my own little virtual world. Is that what we're talking about well, here? Well, either the experiences are a little virtual world or interacts with the world as a whole. Okay, well, I like my body and I like sort of the sensations that you, like having a human body can provide. So being able to touch and smell and feel and taste, um, I think that's really, really cool. I like that a lot. Um, but if I could experience that in a different body, being a brain in a jar, that wouldn't bother me too much, I don't think. And so one of the really interesting parts about this is the brain in the jar kind of mythic archetype comes from a time when we didn't necessarily understand the importance of the sensory input processing that our brain does. As we're talking about all of these stories, so much about what our brain does is actually processing all these things that we come across in our world. So if we remove those sensory inputs to the brain, it's not left with the thinking machine that just sits there like a computer. You've actually robbed or stopped the brain's ability to process and do 80% of its job. I have a question for you, Justin. In this like mythical world you're giving us the option of being like a body being in a body or a brain in a jar um have we developed technology enough that we can fool this brain in a jar into thinking that it's still experiencing all these things to give it um still like information input so it feels like it's getting sensory information and that's the really hard part about all of this from what we've gotten from all of these stories today is that we don't necessarily understand how our body actually responds to a lot of stimuli it's not like we have five input channels Vision, sight, smell, touch, whatever the fifth one is. <laughs> um, and I'm not even getting to the sixth. But the, um, it's not like we just have the simple basic sense mechanisms that you would have thought of in a classical sense. There's a lot more going on that we don't really understand, whether that be the body's response to our internal body clock, the sense of the, the feeling of the seasons, or a lot of the pressure even in the atmosphere. There's a lot of things our body is responding to and feeding as an input to our brain that we just don't understand. So if we don't understand all of that, I don't think we have a hope of actually mimicking and replicating something that would fool a brain in a jar. So Lauren, would you want to exist as a brain in a jar or would you like to keep your body out there in the world? If the, um, I think personally I'd want to keep 
my brain in my body and so I can still experience the world as a whole, especially since we don't know as much about um, the brain, fooling the brain into thinking it. However, if the Matrix did exist, then I would be totally fine with being placed in the Matrix. No, I have to agree with you there. I have no problems with being in the Matrix. No, Justin, you're an engineer, though, so I reckon that you'd be more for the innovation sort of thing. Like, so say we could have a brain with all these senses, you have artificial limbs, you have, like, you can make this, you can craft this new body out of all these fantastic pieces of equipment, you can have all these sensory inputs and all this information at your disposal, you could become basically superhuman. And then, then that's the premise of Robocop, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, especially as a cyborg augmentated transhuman, I think there'd be a lot of potential out there. So, brain in a jar, look, it's a mythic archetype that stems from a day when we didn't really understand the way that the brain works. But the brain is a much more complex piece that is a lot more difficult to fool. So, that was our question for this week's Not Even Rocket Surgery segment. If you have your own question, crazy as it may seem, and you want us to answer it, let us know on our comment on our Facebook page, on our SoundCloud profile, on our website, ysa.org.au forward slash Melbourne. Send us an email or talk to us on iTunes, and we will answer your question, no matter how crazy or calm it might appear to be. And we'll give you some actual science. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This is what we're talking about, the mysteries of the brain in terms of music, language processing, the way we understand words, and the way in which we use our brain to understand the world around us. We also answered whether or not we could live as a brain in isolation in a jar. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.